Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Primeval Podcast. This is now episode six. No intro today. If you're following this podcast, you've heard it five times already. So let's just jump right into it. I've been dragging my feet on this podcast, not just because we had VBS recently, Vacation Bible School. Then my family went on a little vacay to Padre Island. Then we had the 4th of July. And then the real truth, I've been procrastinating because I've kind of been dreading this episode. I lack confidence that I'm going to be able to do today's subject justice. So that's why we procrastinate, isn't it? We don't think we're going to do a good job. We think it's going to be harder than it actually winds up being, et cetera, et cetera. So I've, I have been procrastinating a little bit, doing a little extra study because... Um, This is a difficult topic today, but oh well, here we go, sink or swim. Today we are going to retrace our steps from the verses we covered in the last episode, only we're going to attack it from a different angle today. Today we're going to continue our discussion of creation from Genesis 1.14, only this time we are going to discuss the creation of time. So here's what it says again in Genesis 1.14 and following. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. So I would like to posit that this verse is describing to us the creation of time. God exists in eternity. We, creation, exist in time. Only God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He just exists. We are immortal. We have a beginning, but our existence will have no end. So God is not subject to time. God existed before there was time. This has some important implications in regards to what eternity will hold for us, for instance. It also has some important implications in regards to things like Bible prophecy and theological disputes about concepts like divine predestination. So I'm going to read to you a relevant passage about God's perspective of time and how that can directly impact our lives here and now. I'm going to be reading a lot today because my personal thoughts on this subject are not mature I'm going to be relying on people who are way smarter than me to help me communicate things that are still yet a little beyond my grasp. So uh, this first passage I'm going to read is from one of my favorite authors, Dr. Michael Heiser, his book, The Unseen Realm. The heading of the section is evil and foreknowledge. So that's a big topic of scripture, God's foreknowledge, his knowledge of future events, their future from our perspective, not necessarily God's perspective. And so here we go. It's from the unseen realm, evil and foreknowledge. Acknowledging God's foreknowledge and also the genuine free will of humankind 
especially with respect to the fall, the fall of human beings, raises obvious questions. Was the fall predestined? If so, how was the disobedience of of Adam and Eve free? How were they freely acting, in other words, if it was an event that was predestined by God? And then even further, how were they truly responsible? Since we aren't told much in Genesis about how human freedom works in relation to divine attributes like foreknowledge, predestination, and omniscience, we need to look elsewhere in Scripture for some clarification. Let's look at 1 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 13. Now they told David, Look, the Philistines are fighting in Keilah, and they are raiding the threshing floors. So David inquired of Yahweh, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And Yahweh said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah, to the battle lines of the Philistines? So David again inquired of Yahweh. And Yahweh answered him and said, Get up and go down to Keilah, for I am giving the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines. They drove off their livestock and dealt them a heavy blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, he went down with an ephod in his hand. And when it was told to Saul that David had gone to Keilah, Saul said, God has given him into my hand because he has shut himself in by going into the city with two barred gates. Saul then summoned all of the army for the battle to go down to Keilah to lay a siege against David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. And David said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, your servant has clearly heard that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city because of me. Will the rulers of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Yahweh, God of Israel, please tell your servant. And Yahweh said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the rulers of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And Yahweh said, They will deliver you. So David and his men got up, about 600 men, and went out from Keilah and wandered wherever they could go. And when it was told to Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he stopped his pursuit. That's the end of the Bible passage. We're continuing with Heiser's description of the account now. In this account, David appeals to the omniscient God to tell him about the future. In the first instance, David asks God whether he should go to the city of Keilah and whether he'll successfully defeat the Philistines there. God answers in the affirmative in both cases. David goes to Keilah and indeed defeats the Philistines. In the second section, verses 6 through 13, David asks the Lord two questions. One, 
Will his nemesis Saul come to Keilah and threaten the city on account of David's presence? And two, will the people of Keilah turn him over to Saul to avoid Saul's wrath? Again, God answers both questions affirmatively. He will come down. They will deliver you. Here's the catch, and this is in italics. Neither of these events that God foresaw ever actually happened. Once David hears God's answers, he and his men leave the city. When Saul discovers this fact, he abandons his trip to Keilah. Saul never made it. He never made it to the city. The men of Keilah never turned David over to Saul. Why is this significant? This passage clearly establishes that divine foreknowledge does not necessitate divine predestination. God foreknew what Saul would do and what the people of Keilah would do given a set of circumstances. In other words, God foreknew a possibility, but this foreknowledge did not mandate that the possibility was actually predestined to happen. The events never happened. So by definition, they could not have been predestined. And yet the omniscient God did indeed foresee them. Predestination and foreknowledge are separable. The theological point can be put this way. That which never happens can be foreknown by God, but it is not predestined since it never happened. But what about the things that do happen? They can obviously be foreknown, but were they predestined? Since we have seen above that foreknowledge in itself does not necessitate predestination, all that foreknowledge truly guarantees is that something is foreknown. If God foreknows some event that happens, then he may have predestined that event. But the fact that he foreknew an event does not require its predestination if it happens. The only guarantee is that God foreknew it correctly, whether it turns out to be an actual event or merely a possible event. The theological point can be put this way. Since foreknowledge doesn't require predestination, foreknown events that happen may or may not have been predestined. This set of ideas goes against the grain of several modern theological systems. Some of those systems presume that foreknowledge requires predestination. And so everything must be predestined because God knows everything that's going to happen in the future. All the way from the fall to the Holocaust to what you'll choose off of a dinner menu. Others dilute foreknowledge by proposing that God doesn't foreknow all, po- all possibilities, since all possibilities cannot happen. Or they posit other universes where all the possibilities happen. These ideas are unnecessary in light of 1 Samuel 23 and other passages that echo the same fundamental idea. Foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination. Now, I'm going to take this line of argument even further because there is a presumption in that discussion that I think does not really clarify God's perspective versus our perspective. So from our perspective as human beings, 
there is such a thing as the future. There are future events. There are past events. That does not adequately describe God's perspective on historical events, past, present, and future. Since God existed before time, God is not subject to time. For God, there is no past or future. God is transcendent of those qualities of the created order, just like he's not subject to any other physical law or property. So he spoke in our first episode about one of God's unique qualities being omnipresent. God is always present everywhere. Well, being omnipresent doesn't only apply to being everywhere in space all at once. It also applies to being present in all of time all at once. We experience time. Time is an objective objectively real thing that we experience. We experience space, matter, energy, and time. These are all properties of the physical creation, the physical universe. God participates with us throughout the events of world history, as well as our own personal history. We see in the story of Adam and Eve that the clock of time started started ticking at the fall. But before the fall, humans enjoyed boundless duration, what is called boundless or endless duration. They didn't experience time. Time implies an end by definition, a beginning and an end. That's why in the New Eden, described in Revelation chapters 21 through 22, the Bible starts with the Garden of Eden, it ends with the Garden of Eden. In both instances, they imply boundless duration. When you have access to the tree of life, that implies human beings have access to boundless duration or immortality. In Revelation 21 and 22, there is no longer any day or night. Humans, once again, enjoy boundless duration. Boundless meaning there are no longer any limits, nor is there any end. It is the duration of life in its perfection. I want to talk about this a little bit from a uh, historical perspective, how great thinkers in the past have described this, including uh, our particular father as Methodists, John Wesley, and how that applies to things like God's foreknowledge and free will. Clearly, God does not predetermine every little thing that's going to happen. Let's start with some thinkers from church history and how they described the relationship between God and time. I'm going to start with a man named Bothius because this is a man that Wesley based his opinion off of. Here's what he said. Bothius was a thinker who lived in the 400s in Rome, and this is what he said in regards to God's relationship to time and eternity. I'm going to be reading from a book called The Certainty of Faith and the Probabilities of Salvation History by a professor I had at Asbury Seminary named Lawrence W. Wood. He further described God's knowledge as based on his ability of looking down on all. This is why Bothius said, The vision looking down on all does not alter the nature of what is present before it. 
though in terms of time, the events are in the future. Hence, God has knowledge based on truth and not mere opinion. Bothius further argued, but those future things which result from free will, God sees as present. So it's more accurate to say that God has knowledge and he has foreknowledge only from a human perspective. Because for God, all of time is present to himself. He isn't subject to time. He, isn't, he doesn't exist within space-time. He's transcendent of it. So he holds all of time as present. Bothius believed God knows our future, but not in advance of it happening from his perspective. Hence, Bothius maintained that the divine knowledge of our future time in no way compromises the reality of human freedom. Bothius further explained that God correctly envisions the future quality of our actions since his eternity is co-present to all time. He further said that God sees the past and the future as if they were going on right now. Thus, the past and the future are co-present with God. As Bothius explains, this is not foreknowledge, but knowledge. Bothius is thus careful to point out that divine omniscience does not mean that future events cause God to have foreknowledge of them. It only means God is able to see the future events, and that is why God knows them. So God's knowledge of the future does not cause events to happen. Neither do future events cause God to have knowledge of them. God simply knows them because God sees them in the eternal present. If one is free to act, does this mean that one can frustrate God's knowledge if one chooses to do something other than that which God foresaw? Bothius shows that this question misses the point of how God knows the future of time. And this is quotes from Bothius. To this I answer that you may indeed alter your decision, but since the present truth of providence sees not only that you can, but also whether you will, you can no more frustrate divine foreknowledge than you could escape the eye of one watching you now by freely changing the course of your actions. God thus sees everything in one unchanging glance because everything real or possible is already present. It is not because God has to see through a looking glass into the future. Rather, the future is actual to God. Hence, God does not see everything in advance because that would be a denial of human freedom. Rather, the future of all things in time is already present to God. Now, I also wanted to read to you what John Wesley had to say about this topic. John Wesley specifically embraced the view of Bothius because it preserved both omniscience and human freedom. God, both of those are true. God is omniscient, and human beings have free will. We'll discuss that again as we get into the image of God and God's plans and purposes for human beings on the earth in gen, later on in Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2. Wesley said, There is neither foreknowledge or afterknowledge in God. Wesley wrote, 
The sum of all is this, the almighty, all-wise God sees and knows from everlasting to everlasting all that is, that was, and that is to come through one eternal now. With him, nothing is either past or future, but all things equally present. The source of Wesley's view is not from other church fathers. It is from Bothius. He argued, Bothius, B-O-E-T-H-I-U-S, he argued that it was pastorally significant to affirm a Bothian interpretation of eternity in his sermon on predestination. He is particularly sensitive to the problem of theological determinism, that is, divine predestination. If God foreknows something, it has to happen because if God foreknows something, his knowledge is perfect. And if his knowledge is perfect, then if he foreknows something, it has to happen. That's uh, theological determinism. So God determines, because of his foreknowledge, everything that's going to happen, every action of the human will, uh, every act of history is predetermined by God. And yes, that includes the negative things. So Wesley is particularly sensitive to the problem of theological determinism because he wants to preserve the integrity of real human freedom. Otherwise, God is responsible for acts of sins. In a lucid discussion, Wesley explains the relation of time and eternity, noting that time is a real fragment of eternity. So here's Wesley's quote. All time, or rather, all eternity, for time is only that small fragment of eternity which is allotted to the children of men, being present to him at once. He does not know one thing before another, or one thing after another, but sees all things in one point of view from everlasting to everlasting. As all time, with everything that exists therein, is present with him at once, so he sees at once whatever was, is, or will be to the end of time. But observe, we must not think they are because he knows them. No, he knows them because they are. Just as I, if one may be allowed to compare the things of men with the deep things of God, know that the sun shines, yet the sun does not shine because I know it. But I know it because it shines. My knowledge supposes the sun to shine, but does not in any way cause it. In like manner, God knows that man sins, for he knows all things. Yet we do not sin because he knows it, but he knows it because we sin. And his knowledge supposes our sin, but does not in any way cause it. In a word, God looking on all ages from the creation to the consummation as a moment, and seeing at once whatever is in the hearts of all the children of men, knows everyone that does or does not believe in every age or nation. Yet what he knows, whether faith or unbelief, is in no wise caused by his knowledge. Men are as free in believing or not believing as if he did not know it at all. Wesley concluded that unless the distinction between time as a real development as opposed to eternity 
as the comprehensive moment of all time is preserved, then humanity would not be accountable for its moral behavior and not capable either of reward or punishment. Wesley, of course, rejected the theological determinism of great thinkers like Augustine and Calvin. I also wanted to discuss some recent, relatively in the landscape of history, relatively recent scientific discoveries that support the notion that time is actually a physical part of the created universe. It's not just some abstract reality that uh, will go on and on forever. Time has actual physical properties. This was discovered by the scientist, the crazy-haired scientist that you and I know and love as Albert Einstein. Originally, Sir Isaac Newton, in his uh, studies of physical creation, in Newton's view, space and time are completely different. So time is just this abstract ticking of the clock somewhere uh, in some abstract ether. Well, later on, Albert Einstein has proven through his theory of relativity that that is not the case. So I'm going to read to you still from Lawrence Wood's book. One of the most dramatic paradigm shifts in the history of physics was the discovery that space and time are not two independent entities, but a single entity woven together like a piece of fabric. This understanding of space-time was one of the consequences of Einstein's theory of special and general relativity. Special relativity says that energy is equivalent to mass times the speed of light squared, E equals mc squared. The significance of this formula is that it shows that the tick of the clock depends on how fast things are moving. Now, pause for a minute. A good illustration of this would be the movie Interstellar. That's a great movie, and it does a great job at illustrating this principle for us. So I recommend you watch that if you haven't. Continuing with our reading now. We usually think of space as having three dimensions. For example, one walks into a room and notices that it has width, length, and height. One can move back and forth in the room or climb stairs, allowing us to go up or down. But we experience time quite differently. We cannot go back and forth in time. We only move forward in time. Yet when things are described in terms of very high energy at the speed of light, space and time are seen as one thing. They appear independent in our daily lives because our slow motion on planet Earth. But they become one as motion approaches the speed of light so that the distinction between the past, the present, and the future disappears. There is no space where there is no time and there is no time where there is no space. Do you see why I needed help describing this topic now? The law of special relativity destroyed Newton's view of absolute time. Newton interpreted time as being the same everywhere in the universe, whether in London or in another galaxy. The tick of the clock was the same. This is what he meant by absolute time. Just as atoms were thought to be indivisible, and uniformly spread throughout the absolute space without change, so time was absolute throughout the universe without any variation. 
common sense based on our slow-moving environment thus supposed there was no essential connection between space and time. Contrary to this view, Einstein showed that while space is three dimensions, time is the fourth dimension. According to special relativity, time beats at different rates depending on how fast one or something moves through space. Time, as measured by real clocks, actually tick differently relative to the speed of the observer. Thus, one's time frame of reference depends on how fast one's physical environment is moving. Einstein's prediction about time time slowing down with increasing speed has been confirmed repeatedly with with atomic clocks orbiting around the Earth. We perceive space and time as separate entities only because we move slowly in our earthly relation to them, but the tick of the clock becomes slower with high velocity. This means... As Heisenberg put it, when two events are simultaneous for one observer, they may not be simultaneous for another observer, for he is in motion relative to the first observer. I'm going to leave it at that. I think you get the point. Time is a part of physical creation. It's a created thing. It exists within space-time as a dimension that we experience. God does not experience time like you and I experience time. If he did, that would make God subject to time. And God is sovereign. He isn't subject to anything or anyone. God is transcendent. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He can do anything, and he knows all things. That doesn't mean that he causes all things. The The topic that we've discussed today illustrates how that's possible. But what does that mean for us? So for here and and now, we are to use our time for three primary reasons, three primary purposes. God has created time. Number one, we are to use our time to decide whether or not we are going to be loyal to God. A lot of people believe in God, but they don't choose to be loyal to God. This is what saving faith entails. Saving faith entails not just choosing to believe in God, but choosing to be loyal to this God that has revealed himself in Scripture. So one of the things we want to do with this podcast is give people confidence in the the revelation of God that is uniquely found in Scripture. We want you to be confident that this information is correct, and when it's properly interpreted, it reveals God, and this God is worth giving your loyalty to. Number two, once we make that decision, we then need to decide to what extent are we going to become loyal to this God. Some people are loyal In very weak ways, some people choose to be loyal in very strong ways. We want to be loyal not only in strong ways, but in informed ways. Not just that we're loyal to God, but how are we loyal to God. So that's why we work so hard at understanding Scripture. Scripture reveals not just that God wants our loyalty, but then how he wants that loyalty to be expressed. So point number one, whether or not we're going to be loyal to God. Point number two, To what extent 
Are we going to develop or cultivate or refine our ability to express that loyalty? And then thirdly, based upon those two decisions, how are we going to use our time to work at healing and developing the Imago Dei, the image of God, the noose, as we discussed in previous episodes? We are to use our time to develop our inner man in the things of God. And that's not just so that we can express loyalty to him, but so that we can develop skills by which he's going to command Adam and Eve to take this good environment that I've created, Eden, and I want you guys to work at at extending it over the entire planet. So all of those things are coming into play into why God has given us time, why he has provided us with time, and we need that time to develop in all of those ways. That's why the Bible describes living a long life as being a blessing from God. Human beings need time to develop their skills and abilities that at one point in the future, from our perspective, will be resurrected into an indestructible body a resurrected, indestructible body on this earth. It will be a resurrection. So what we have cultivated is what will be resurrected. God is not going to perform a new creation and download all of his omniscience into your mind. It's a resurrection. You will know what you knew before. You will have the character that you had before. You will have some of the skills that you had before that you developed. There are going to be other implications to the resurrection as well, but just to to be saying, we're given time, and that time is a blessing because we need a lot of time to cultivate the qualities that God is looking for as an expression of loyalty to his sovereign leadership. I want to end on that note with a quote, again, from Lawrence Woods, Dr. Lawrence Woods' book. This is from a thinker that he cites extensively in his chapters on eternity and time, Wolfhart Pannenberg is the thinker's name. Pannenberg feels that Jesus' message on the imminent coming kingdom of God is the key to Christian theology. Jesus began his public ministry by preaching that the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God was at hand. That's from Mark one fifteen. And so he says, in an important sense, our own personal biographies cannot be written at our death, but rather the history and the meaning of our lives must be composed in light of what we will be in the coming eschatological future. Our true identity will be given to us in the eschaton, or in the end, at the resurrection. And this will illuminate and refocus all the events of our earthly existence. So, I thought that was an interesting note to end this discussion of time and eternity and and God on. Um, Spent a whole episode on time, and it took the whole time to do the clumsy job of (laughs) (laughs) discussing that topic that we did. But it's important. All of these concepts are laying the foundation of the entire revelation of God found in Scripture. So it is worth working on 
some of the details. Because, again, just like God's perspective of time is going to come into play whenever we discuss Bible prophecy later on in Scripture. When we discuss things like predestination and foreknowledge and how they relate to one another and how human beings really are accountable for sin. How human beings, if they cultivate their noose or if they cultivate their inner man, they develop in the things of God can get information about the future, like we learned from the message of Keilah, we can get information about the future from God, we can make real changes, and we can participate with God in creating a better future. That is powerful. It is profound. And so it's an important concept, and uh, it needs to be a tool in our toolkit. God holds all time as eternally present to himself in one eternal now because God is not subject to time. We are. We are developing, we are participating with God in developing the future that he intends to create, which ultimately is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We are participating First and foremost, at developing our minds and hearts so that we can take a place in that project and we can be obedient to God's mandate to Adam and Eve to extend the Garden of Eden throughout the entire planet. This good, very good environment that I've created, I want the entire planet to be covered with it and you have a role to play in doing that. And so we'll end on that with today's episode uh, and we'll go on down the road. Of Genesis chapter 1, we'll be talking about the image of God in human beings next week, and that will probably wind up chapter 1 for us. So look forward to that, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us again. Bye-bye.